Welcome to Recovery Radio by Landmark Recovery with your host, Zach Crouch. In this program, we'll discuss the root causes and treatments of alcohol and substance addiction, speak with experts in related fields, and help navigate the road to recovery. Now, here's the host of Recovery Radio, Zach Crouch. Hello and happy Friday. I'm Zach Crouch, host of the Recovery Radio podcast, your internet radio destination for addiction and recovery resources that save lives and empower families. Do you know someone addicted to drugs or alcohol? Perhaps you've been struggling personally and are looking for resources and expert guidance. Recovery Radio is here to help. We are dedicated to providing you with the necessary tools to inspire a friend, neighbor, colleague, or loved one to take the first step on the road to recovery. Joining us today is Deidre Wade, coming with 18 years of experience in the human services field. Deidre is a licensed professional clinical counselor in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. She obtained her Master's of Arts in Professional Counseling from Liberty, Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. Deidre is in the process of obtaining her PhD in Counselor Education and Supervision from the University of the Cumberlands. Deidre has worked in psychiatric hospitals, residential facilities, and was a therapist for the Sarasota County Drug Court in Florida, along with also having a private practice since 2012. It was at the drug court where Deidre grew an affinity for helping those with addictions of all kinds. She has special training in compulsive gambling, substance abuse, as well as compulsive eating and food addiction. Deidre is the only provider in Kentuckyana to provide the Lifestyle Transformation, an 18-month outpatient treatment program to help individuals battling emotional eating habits, compulsive eating, and overall food addiction. She has been a Kentucky licensed professional clinical counselor supervisor since October of 2017. Welcome to the show, Deidre. We are incredibly gracious to have you on as a guest today. Well, thanks for having me, Zach. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I've known you for for a, a while now, Deidre, and, uh, you know, I've, I've heard from folks in the community just, just tell me about the, uh, the, the good work that you're doing there in your private practice. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, former patients have come to me and said that they were glad that they got referred over to you. So continue to keep up the good work on your end. Yeah, thank you so much. I enjoy what I do, so that's wonderful to hear. Thank you. Yeah. So you know, just kind of jumping right into some of the uh, some of the content here. What what uh, what made you interested in in getting into you know the helping profession in in the you know the field of human services? Goodness, I always wanted to work in some sort of helping profession. I've run the gamut from wanting to be a teacher to, you know, working um, as a doctor, a physician, to now finally finding where I need to be, you know, in a counselor. I am pursuing my doctoral degree so that I can teach at the graduate level because I do enjoy the education piece of it. Um, but I really, really enjoy working with people and helping people. It sounds very cliche, but I, I just have a heart for people. So I feel very blessed to be where I'm at and to yeah. just thoroughly enjoy my day. Yeah. And, and you mentioned there uh, you worked as a uh, physician? 
No, I always, um, in growing up, I had thought, oh, I'll be a teacher or I want to be a doctor. Back in the day, it was a dermatologist, so <laughs> I started out pre-med and like a lot of individuals, um, just trying to figure out where I really wanted to be. And when I discovered the field of counseling, I thought, oh my gosh, this is perfect. This is exactly where I want to be. So I'm thrilled to be here. Absolutely. You know, I, I'm curious because I'm actually, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm married to a counselor. Uh, I'm a counselor yes. myself. And, uh, you know, I've been in the field now for, you know, 10 years plus at this point. What should someone who is maybe even considering working in the field of human services think about prior to jumping right into our helping profession field? Oh, yeah, I think that's a great question. And um, I think it's very important, you know, for them, to, if they're thinking about counseling as a, a particular helping profession that they would possibly be interested in, my first advice is, well, go see a therapist because, you know, that's what <laughs> they're interested yeah. in doing. And I think that's a great way to even tell them, hey, you know, I'm thinking about doing this and I just want to get a feel for it. I think that that would be totally appropriate to see. Um, I think even just getting your foot in the door of um, any sort of helping profession, whether it's working at a hospital or in a residential setting, as far as, you know, residential treatment setting, just to get your foot in the door so that before you yeah. spend all the time and the energy and money on the education, just get the experience. Do as many internships as you can, right? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And I think that's a great way to figure out exactly where you want to be or what where you know you don't want to be. That's a good way to find that out as well. Got it. You know, in 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 there's there's a lot of good counselors in our city. We we have you know three really good schools, maybe four, three really good schools that uh, graduate people to become licensed clinical social workers, licensed marriage and family therapists. Uh, professional counselors. Uh, In your time, you've been in the field almost 20 years now. What would you say makes, you know, to a person looking for a counselor, what, you know, what makes up a good counselor? How do you, how do you determine that? I really think it's about the rapport. Um, We have wonderful techniques and modalities of counseling, but honestly, if you don't mesh with the counselor, then it's not going to work. You have to have a good rapport. So I always tell people if they've had horror stories about going, horror stories in their mind of going to see a counselor, it's like, okay, please don't use that as your basis of all counselors in general. It's about the rapport and the relationship that you build with them and know that you can trust them. I think that's huge. Yeah, and, and I think that you're right. And, and as a matter of fact, you know, there's there there have been studies that have shown actually that the modality that person that a person uses, uh, you know, accounts for 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 little in terms of the actual change that takes place. So it really does right. fall back on the relationship between the counselor and and that particular individual. Exactly. Yeah. You know, you've you've worked in different settings uh, in in your in your time. Uh, what would you have said was the biggest takeaway you've gotten from working in a psychiatric hospital setting or a residential facility as a therapist? You know, I think um, I got a lot out of working each of these settings. And many individuals start in outpatient treatment and end up in the hospital and residential setting. So it's really neat to see the step-down process when someone has been hospitalized or in a residential setting. I'm able to remember, even if they weren't at the facility where I worked, okay, this is kind of what they experienced to be able to get a good 
view of maybe their experience in those facilities and to be able to yeah. function well on an outpatient level, um, outpatient level. And then, of course, working in higher levels of care where the acuity is much higher, I may be more confident when a crisis comes up in my office, which does happen occasionally. So I feel a lot less, you know, nerved when that happens. What have you seen are some of the hiccups that have happened, you know, as, as a uh, as a therapist, you know, and you've been in practice for a while over your years when people make that transition, say, from a higher level of care like a residential facility into outpatient? What, what have been some of the things that have sort of fallen apart for, for people? Ooh, that's a good question. I think a lot of that is just um, depending on their discharge plan, if they have a good, solid plan in place and they feel comfortable with it, I do encourage people, hey, if you don't feel comfortable with something, you need to make sure that that you have a good support system in place because the things that I've seen happen are, you know, people are basically holding your hand if you're inpatient and then you're out and, you know, they're not there to, to make sure that you're doing the things that you need to be doing and getting up out of bed and all that so I make sure that people have a support, good support system and a good plan of action because I do believe structure and routine works well inpatient. So I definitely encourage my clients to have that, you know, when they're out in the real world and yeah, at home. Sure. You know, as a, as a therapist, you and I kind of understand that piece pretty well. But as a as a, con, a, a consumer, I guess it's better, you yeah. know, a terrible word. But as a, as a consumer, as a family member, for that matter, what what would they need to look for? What questions would they need to ask someone who, you know, is, uh, you know, uh, the counselors maybe in that higher level of care before they get discharged into a lower level of care uh, before their loved one leaves treatment? What, what kinds of questions do they, do they need to ask is, is, is sort of layman in layman's terms? Oh, sure. I think they definitely need to know, all right, is there medication that was prescribed? How often mm. do they need to take it? You yeah. know, to, especially if they're underage, of course, they need to know all of that. They need to be able to know what to do, the red flags of, oh, they're not doing well, where they need to go, what they need to do. And then um, to have support for themselves, self-care for the family is very important in times like that because it's such a traumatic experience anyway, knowing that your loved one is somewhere where you can't see them all the time. And so it's important for the self-care piece. But I think any question that they have, do not hesitate to ask the nursing staff. Usually they're wonderful about answering any questions that you have and to make sure that your loved one has seen the psychiatrist regularly. I think that that's a big piece of the puzzle because if they're in a hospital, they need to see the psychiatrist pretty regularly. Absolutely. You bring up an interesting point, too, about, you know, the loved ones involved and not necessarily the patient. But why is it so difficult, you think, for the family, the ones that are, you know, really supporting this person to get better? Why is it so difficult for them to take care of themselves in these situations and and provide their own self-care? Oh, goodness. Well, depending on the issue, I mean, and I think this runs the gamut of that. Guilt is a big factor, even though it's, it's mm. totally unwarranted. They have guilt. the guilt, like, oh, guilt my goodness. Guilt shame, yeah. Yes. So I think that's a big piece. And then, you know, depending on what happened that led them up, led the loved one being put up um, inpatient or residential setting, because a lot of times there's a lot of conflict, and especially if there's a mental inquest warrant taken out or anything like mm. that, it's just a lot of um, just uneasiness in the family. And you can't just put your loved one in inpatient somewhere and then twiddle your thumbs and think, okay, well, I can, 
rest for a bit, it's not that easy. You know, there's <laughs> right. so many other factors that play a part. So family comes to you, they got a lot of guilt and shame about, you know, throwing, you know, uh, little Johnny or Sally into treatment, right? How do you help right. them work through this, uh, the guilt and the shame that they feel around all that? Sure. One thing that I always mention, I say in today's time, you know, they're not going to admit little Johnny or Sally or whoever it is, unless there is a a strong reason, especially with the way our insurance runs and all that. So it's not a matter of you just sending them away and and locking them up for a few days. There is a a reason, a medical reason, a necessity that they're there. And then to remind them, okay, but how were things before? Life wasn't dandy before this. There was obviously a reason that they needed to be there. And then just to remind them mental health issues, You know, that's not something that they have that control over. If depression is rearing its ugly head or substance abuse, the family, you know, they can't just take a magic wand and and wipe it away. That would be wonderful, but this doesn't work that way. You know, it's, it's, it's so true, too, because think of it this way. You know, if, if you've been living with someone who has the addiction and you've been in constant contact with that person in their madness, you know, in their addiction, their right. active use for, you know, days, months, years, and you just think you're right. You know, if somebody goes away to treatment, it's just going to make it all better. But you've had this black cloud over your entire life, your entire family through this person, right. you know, the the the, the legal issues, yeah. the, the health issues, everything. Um, yes. You know, so you, you you're absolutely onto it. You just can't expect that this is just going to you know automatically disappear. You you, you know you need to right. really find another way of of, uh, uh, of of interacting you know with that person and, and also with yourself. So. Yes. Yeah, the individual can be an addiction in in and of themselves, you know, constantly worried, like you were saying about Johnny or whoever, they're especially adult child, I mean, or it doesn't matter, any child or any family member, that can be their addiction, so it is a matter of breaking that codependency that they're dealing with and learn to, to function in a healthy manner. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, you've you've kind of, I don't want to say made a name for yourself, but you have uh, in this city, of course, oh, for, for, for working with uh, people battling emotional eating habits, compulsive eating, food addiction. And, and you, you're, you're doing a very, I would say, um, I don't call it revolutionary, but, you know, certainly uh, dynamic uh, program called the Lifestyle Transformation Program. Uh, yes. what's, what's the what's the what's the background behind that? What is it? What is it? Yeah, this began with a couple of therapists in California. They developed this outpatient program for food addiction and binging disorder. I love this program because it's not a diet program. In fact, there's very little mention of the nutritional part, even though, of course, that's a big factor of the whole dynamic. It is about the emotional junk that people deal with that lead to these behaviors. So I was contacted a few years ago um, from this company, Lifestyle Transformation. They were going around the country looking for people who dealt with addictions, and I had um, eating disorders, you know, on my online profile, and they contacted me. So I went out west, and I went to a special training, and I have ongoing training to uh, be the only provider in the Kentuckiana area that that offers this program. And I love it because they are constantly changing the material, you know, when the new research comes out. So it's not just a 15-year-old material that we just keep using the same thing. It it is new and updated all the time. 
You know, it's an interesting kind of thing, too, because I would say that, you know, as a culture, uh, we, we are absolutely, this culture, obsessed with food. You know, we, we, we yes. think about it constantly. We're enamored with commercials, ads, you know. How does, how does someone just simply step away from the madness of this uh, culture of, you know, consumption? And, uh, you know, how does, <laughs> how does someone know if they're a food addict or not, you know? Ooh, yeah, that's a good question. First of all, I wish there was a way to just totally step away from it. I always talk to my clients who deal with this issue. You know, if you were addicted to heroin, as hard as that addiction is, so difficult to give up and, you know, fight through that, you can remove your dealer's number from your phone. You can't avoid certain places, people, places, and things. With food, like you're saying, I mean, it's everywhere. It's prevalent. It's socially acceptable to have certain foods at holidays and, and all that. So, you know, I do try to teach them through this program that it is not a matter of avoiding because you can't avoid it. You have to walk the tiger of addiction, so to speak, multiple yeah. times a day, sometimes, at least three times a day, if not more. So to be able to recognize the um, the patterns that they're having and then just mm-hmm. to, to talk about portion control and to really recognize the body's cues for hunger, a lot of individuals don't even have that cue anymore because they stay so full all the time. Got it. You know, you're right. I, I think that some of this is what, and, and, you know, you're the expert, but uh, I would think some of this is about just simply becoming more conscious about about your own yes. body, right? Oh, absolutely. Mindfulness, um, big into mindfulness, mindful eating. So we do an exercise with just a one raisin, and it's learning about the texture and the taste and the smell and, and all of that to be able to appreciate food because food is not the enemy, but the addiction is. So to really savor the food because you have to eat and it, it's great, you know, to enjoy your food. That is that fine balance between enjoying the food and then making it, you know, like a God in your life. It's so, it's just, it is a battle, but mindful living, that's huge in the program. Just um, yeah. recognizing the physical, emotional, and spiritual part of yourself is, is enormous. You know, I, I think, as I mentioned, you know, our culture is obsessed with food and, and drink. And, and uh, you know, when I, gosh, when I see people walking down the street and they have a 64-ounce, you know, soda in their hands that right. you probably know this better than I do. But it's got to have, yeah. you know, a thousand, thousand calories or something like that in there. And sure. uh, they're refilling it, you know, you know, one, two, three times a day. That, that just right. can't be healthy for you. Oh, no, definitely not. I knew of an individual. She drank a 12-pack a of regular Pepsi every single day, and, Gosh, you know, wow. that was her addictions. So it, we also decipher between food addiction and then their sugar addiction, and then sometimes, you know, the individuals have to learn to just completely stay abstinent from certain things because it is such a big trigger. Cake yeah. is a big one for individuals. You know, if they have just a tiny piece, oh, they God, have I to go cake. back and have more. I do, and I do too. I mean, I don't. Many people uh, who don't, but oh, it's it's yeah. hard. But even with the soda factor, you know, then it's a matter of okay, you know, if you have to have that, have one or wean down to two, and then see how you do. Yeah. Um, I'm never about cold turkey in this program because that only lasts on a temporary basis. It's a matter of implementing small changes over time. So you're really, and is your program that you do really is is about a lifestyle transformation? It really is. Yeah, I love the name. It is appropriate for it because it's not a diet. It's not a 
phase or a fad. It's definitely you have to transform every every ounce of what you're doing. And especially in our culture, we have a lot of food pushers and people don't like it when other people want to take hold of their lives and change sometimes. And so food pushing is a big problem for individuals, for many people. Is uh, is the treatment approach, you know, with, with food addiction different uh, between men and women significantly? You know, it it works well with both genders um, and all ages. I see adults, but you can incorporate this for, um, like, adults, or I'm sorry, adolescents. But for men and women, it is. It's interesting, though, because men usually, if they have binge eating disorder or food addiction, a lot of times that will not present until around their 30s or 40s. In women, okay. it's usually most prevalent in their beginning, most prevalent in their 20s. So there is a different shift there. But the program itself, I think, could benefit either you know male or female. There's been successes with each. Got it. Got it. You know, for your for your own sort of interest, I guess, as a as a professional and, and, and as a counselor, what made you decide to pursue special training in gambling? Uh, it's one of your other specialties, as well as food addiction and binge drinking. Sure, uh, I definitely I wanted to do this um, because I, again, it's about presenting with opportunity because when I started into counseling, I never said, okay, I'm just going to meet with people with this issue or that issue. I enjoy multiple issues, but the overall theme that I really enjoy is addiction. So same thing with gambling as far as the lifestyle transformation opportunity to go to a gambling conference compulsive mm-hmm. gambling conference, excuse me, <laughs> Dream yeah, <of> gambling. Sure. <laughs> and it was fascinating. It. And yeah, it, it's amazing how prevalent that is in our society, not just in Kentucky with the horse racing, but it's the online games. It's the, you know, definitely the casinos and all of that. But I was really impressed because a lot of these treatment conferences are sponsored by the racing commissions and the casinos because they have to allot a certain yeah, amount of money sure. to be able to put back into treatment. So that was really neat. In terms of, you know, the progression of someone going from zero to 100 miles per hour with, you know, with, with heroin, right? That's what we're seeing a lot of now. It's, it's very quick. What about yes. with food addiction and especially gambling addiction? Is the progression really subtle or is it quick that you see in, in, in your treating both those populations? Ooh, it depends on your view of quick or fast, you know, what, how, yeah. what that looks like, because there's definitely a tolerance and there's definitely a withdrawal like any other addiction. So it could be a matter of, you know what, I'm going to go to the, the uh, casino, the boat, you know, once a month or whatever, and not even intentional. It just happens that way. And then they get a free another day on the weekend and they go there and then they get, you know, a day off during the week and they go there. So it can be very subtle or it could be quick. I think that's for the individual and then the, the reward that they're getting in their brain, the dopamine, how fast that's working as well and other stressors in their life. If they want to escape in some area that definitely, you know, progresses the, the addiction as well. I think, or I don't think I know food addiction. A lot of times it is stemmed in childhood though with Mm. what a relationship with food looks like. So it can definitely develop later in life, but I think the seeds are sown early on. Gosh, it's interesting you'd say that. I grew up in a uh, Italian household, and uh, mom, you know, oh. uh, would just absolutely hook it up. You know, <laughs> we we would yes. have you know spaghetti with meatballs, lasagna, all kinds of pasta, pizza. You know, just 
heavy, heavy food. And, yes. you know, I was fairly overweight as a young kid. And then I had a growth spurt and then I lost all of it. But, you know, to this day, it's uh, food is a big part of my life. And uh, I had sure. to, uh, you know, recently within the past month or two, uh, get on a diet. And, and I had to take a look at, you know, what I was eating. And as we talked about becoming more conscious about the choices that I'm making around food. And uh, there's right. almost as though there's a grieving process that's gone on with me around all this stuff. Do you see that oh, with yeah. your clients? Absolutely. I mentioned withdrawal and it's, it is a physical withdrawal, but it's also emotional withdrawal because it is like, oh my gosh, I, I grew up doing this or yeah. I don't know what to do without having a hot dog and this or that at the ballpark, you know, and there's nothing wrong with those things, but if it is a stumbling block for the individual and it, if it takes them down a spiral rocky path, then, you know, then they have to address that. But the grieving process is totally normal and part of the process. I mean, that's just, because it's different. Your life is different. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, it was a wake up call for me. It really was because when I went to the doctor, he said, Zach, you're pre-diabetic. And I was like, oh, my gosh, Ooh. you know, and yeah, uh, that's no good. yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I don't have diabetes, but I don't want diabetes either. And, right. you know, I, I've I've really had to, you know, take it. And as you pointed out, it's a slow process. I've, I've you know, got a fitness app. It's called my, my fitness pal. And I, I record everything yeah. I need in there. It's a great app. And, uh, right. but, but I've, you know, it's, I'm almost 40 now and I've got the, the pounds just don't fall off the way that they used to. No, definitely. There's something about the age of 40. <laughs> they tend to, to stick around a little bit. <laughs> right. Ooh. Yeah. I mean, and what you're saying about the health issue, a lot of times people come to me, and I'm sure they come to other therapists with this issue because of a health scare or, you know, they're scared that they're they're going to die. They won't be able to see their kids grow up and have kids of their own and everything. There is a, um, a vanity part about it as well. However, a lot of individuals who have serious weight issues, a lot of times they don't feel like they deserve to look any better or to gain positive attention. So there's that battle with the sabotage and, you know, I'm not yeah. worthy of feeling good too. And I I think that uh, this is just an opinion, but I think that men often have a lot of, uh, have a hard time, you know, Uh, an example was just popping in my head as as we were talking. So, you know, a guy maybe calls you up Deidre and says, Hey, you know, Hey Deidre, I was told by a friend to give you a call and I don't know why I need to call you, but my, my partner said it would be a good idea. How would you work with the resistance uh, on a call like that, even before that person's committed to even seeing you? You know, I always, I'm up front with it. I think it's kind of an elephant in the room for a lot of people. If people come and they're resistant, they're just coming to appease them, then their, their loved one or whatever, I usually say, okay, mm-hmm. I know you're just coming here to, to please them. And that's cool. You know, I'm meeting you where you're at. So if you're not quite ready to, to do anything, all right, how can this be, um, you know, a positive experience for you. I would hate for you to come here and to dread coming or feel like you can't talk about anything for fear that I'm taking notes and going to get back with someone about what you're saying. So <laughs> right. it's all about meeting them where they're at. And if they're not ready to change anything, okay, then tell me something that can be beneficial. Or, you know, if they're still coming to counseling, that says a lot because no one is twisting their arm if they're over age. You know, they're not being, their arms aren't twisted to come. So there's something positive in that. 
do you see, I know that you work with court-ordered clients as well. Do you see a difference in the level of motivation for someone to get sober when working uh, when, when working with a court-ordered client versus, say, a voluntary person seeking treatment? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think that comes with the territory, but I've been very lucky with the clients that I've had. I've had just a very tiny few who are like, you know, I am doing this and I could care less. I just want to keep doing what I'm doing. So again, it's about about meeting them where they're at. The thing with drug court is, of course, you know, I had to report to the judge and in front of attorneys and everything. But I was felt so lucky because my clients were, they seemed very open to it. It's kind of like, well, I've tried it my way and it didn't work. So I might as well try to get sober because I'm in this program and I'll end up in jail if I you know, right. if I have a, a dirty drug test or whatever. Right. So, again, meeting them where they're at and then not trying to do the smoke and mirrors. It's like, okay, here's here's how it is. I'm not going to say one yeah. thing in this room and then go back and say something else to someone else. But would you say that they, they, the person, you know, really needing change, do they have to really want it for themselves before anything can change? Ooh, that's t- such a tough question because then the whole thing gets into interventions and do they work and all that. Yeah, I, I do absolutely. believe that. What's that? I was just agreeing with you. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. The um, So with that, I think the, the resistance is there, yes, but... Again, you know, if someone is completely resistant to treatment, then how can we make this a positive experience for them and to get something out of it? So in the long term, if they complete treatment with me or whatever and they're still that way, of course, I'm thinking, well, you know, I have doubts that they're really doing what they, you know, what I feel like they should be doing. But at the end of the day, you know, no one's twisting their arm. And if they, if they want to change, I believe in the power of change and people can change. I'm an eternal optimist that way. But yeah, people do have to want to change and make the the hard choices to change. Well, as you have experience in the court systems, uh, I'm sure you've heard of Casey's law, right? I have. Yes. So, Casey's Law is a legal proceeding which results in a court order for involuntary treatment for addiction, right? So yes. the the person is, they go before a judge, they uh, they get two people to evaluate them. If, uh, if, if our listeners are more interested in that, they can go to caseyslaw.org slash treatment. That's C-A-S-E-Y-S-L-A-W dot O-R-G slash treatment and find out more about that. But... You know, in terms of in terms of Casey's law, um, what has been your experience in working with families and clients who are are trying to get you know in through the Casey's law? Sure. Well, uh, Florida actually had a similar statute or has one called the Marshman Act. It's the exact same thing. It's just yes. a different name. So my experience with that is the same. You know, they're going through all of this again. There's a lot of trauma and conflict because obviously the person doesn't want the help. They don't. Sometimes they don't even know that they have a problem or feel like there's a problem. And the loved ones are saying, yes, we are worried about you. We want you to get help. So there's a lot of conflict and trauma with that. So, again, I think it's a matter of really breaking it down to individuals and, and getting to know them as an individual, not just talking about the problem in the room, you know, that they're dealing with. Because at the end of the day, I'm going to be a huge advocate for my client no matter what. But I also like to keep it real with people. If they're headed down a path where they could die or end up in jail, I mean, I'm going to gently remind them of that 
but I mean, they usually know. Um, but I think these programs are wonderful because before these were implemented, you know, families were basically, their hands were tied. They had no, nothing that they could really do. So I'm thrilled that there is something out there like this for families and just loved ones yeah, in general. Me too. me too. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I saw that you utilize a lot of psychoeducation, uh, especially for the binge eating and emotional eating component of your practice. Uh, talk a little bit more about that. What, uh, what you, how do you describe that style of education for our listeners? Yeah, education about addiction is really, really important to be able to change the addictive behaviors. So I share my knowledge about addiction in general, and then we go through the addiction cycle, which is wonderful because if they're dealing with binge eating or shopping or, you know, technology over usage or anything, the addiction cycle is the addiction cycle. So we implement binge eating and emotional eating in that cycle. And then um, also with the psychoeducation, it's important to be aware of the history of their relationship with food. So we talk about different types of relationship with food, what their current relationship is, and then what kind they would like to have in the future. So um, I also do a special training for therapists to be able to recognize these issues in their clients to begin treatment with them, with their clients, or to refer them to someone, you know, who does this a lot. Got it. You, you mentioned addiction cycle. Uh, I know what that is, but tell our listeners a little bit more sure. about that. Yeah, basically it starts with the some sort of stress, something uh, concerning any sort of negative thing could go on, but it doesn't have to be that. With binge eating or in food addiction, it could be, hey, I had a great day at work, so now I want to do these things. Right. But I'll, to keep it easy, I'll start with a negative emotion. Gosh, I had a terrible day at work. I'm so stressed out. The second part of it is they're reaching into themselves. They know, you know, I should call a friend or go for a walk or do something different, but I'm just going to reach in. I, I don't want to deal with anything or anyone. Then they start to become preoccupied with the addiction uh, that they deal with. So it could be, wow, there's Oreos in the fr- or in the uh, cabinet in the kitchen. I can't quit thinking about that. So then they give into that. They go into the ritual part of that in that, I always use this as an example, they get the Oreos out, they bring them into the living room, sit in their favorite chair with the tall glass of milk, mm-hmm. with the TV on, and then the actual acting out is the binge. They may eat, you know, a few, they may eat a um, the whole package, it just depends on the person. And then it goes back to the, the negative feeling because then they feel terrible, they're stressed, they're guilty, you know, feel all of the, all of these terrible emotions. So the cycle just continues unless you do something different. You know, that's uh, thank you for that. And you know, I've often heard like once the ball starts rolling, it's it's hard for it to stop. So during that cycle, that addiction cycle piece, how does one decide, or what do they do to you know, where do they notice you know, okay, I need to probably do something different here versus like, all right, I'm yes. in front of the TV, I'm already eating the Oreos, it's already a done deal. So, you know, what right. point of the addiction cycle do they need to intervene and, and do something? Honestly, any part that they recognize what they're doing. So ideally, they're going to be mindful. They're going to realize, man, I had a stressful day at work. So knowing this on the way home, what can I do different? Because I know I have a tendency to grab those dumb Oreos and sit in my chair. 
it's okay, I'm feeling terrible. So maybe I'll call my friend on the way home from work and, or maybe I'll stop and, you know, pick up something at the store, non-food related, you know, flowers for my neighbor. It could be anything. And even in the middle of the cycle, if they realize that, oh gosh, I'm in the middle, maybe even during the binge, then okay, what's done is not, that doesn't define the rest of the night. You know, you can literally change any part of that cycle that you're willing to change at that point. But ideally, it's a matter of recognizing your feelings and emotions before it starts. And is it important to trace that back to when it happened for a person? You know, like, when did I start feeling bad? There was this event that happened? Yes, absolutely. Again, you know, not to beat a dead horse about the the mindful living, but ideally it would be, okay, I tend to get really stressed at work. What's going on? Maybe my phone is ringing off the hook. Maybe I'm trying to do work during lunch. Just try to change something. And, you know, with their therapist, they can figure that out. How, why is work so stressful? Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe I need to have a conversation with someone, or maybe it's just, I try to work so much during my lunch break that I need to take time and just have a break and walk away from my desk. It could be any of those things. Got it. So part of this, it sounds to me like is about drawing boundaries, right? Between healthy and unhealthy. And, 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 absolutely. uh, you, you know, the drawing boundaries piece, uh, talk, talk a little bit more about how you work with people to begin doing those things. Sure. I think bur- building boundaries with food, it really starts before that in building boundaries with yourself and with others. So, for example, the, the addiction cycle could mean the stressful part is them not being assertive enough, you know, feeling like they cowered to a coworker or something or took on a responsibility that they, they knew they couldn't handle. Um, it's being able to set personal boundaries with yourself and with others. And then it's so much easier to work on the food boundaries. So that's why this program is about the, all the emotional stuff and the relational stuff, because it is about the food, but it's so much more than the food. It's about drawing the boundaries with feeling comfortable in your own skin with what you do with who you are as a person, regardless of the extra pounds you carry. Got it. Well, um, you know, there's, there's, it seems like, and it is, I think it's true. Working with addiction in general is, is very, it it can be very taxing, uh, for the person doing the work, you know, the counselor involved. Sure. Um, what's, what's been the most rewarding part for you of helping out those people with addictions? I love being able to hear hear from, um, you know, clients a couple years after the fact or whatever, especially with drug court. I've still kept in contact with some of my former clients down there because it's been several years. And to just know, wow, they're, they have families now. They're going back to nursing school, which would have they've thought, especially with um, heroin charge or anything like right. that, possession, that that would never been the case. But I, it's so rewarding to see that. And my belief is true, you know, change is possible and not only change, but people can lead successful lives. And I do enjoy working with uh, people involved in the justice system because I have several clients who've been to prison, but now they're business owners. And it's just really cool to see the the progress after the fact. So, and even the small progress, you know, I, I'm a, the eternal encourager too so if someone says well gosh you know I only did this four days this week I say well hey that's four out of seven so it's cool to see the small um, progress is you know progress 
in the process also. Yeah, sure. How do you know when someone's done with therapy? That's a good question. You know, from the very beginning of therapy, we start talking about the termination or the ending of therapy. So if you go to therapy and your therapist doesn't talk about what goals you want to work on, then you may need to have a conversation with them (laughs) about that. That's that's important because you don't, this, this isn't the old days. This isn't Freud. You know, you're sitting, you're going four times a week for a couple hours at a time for years. This is, I believe in solution focused therapy and whatever mm-hmm. the issues are, okay, let's work through them. But I love it when people come to therapy for maintenance and to check up, you know, just how they're doing. So I'm a big believer of the whole, you know, you go for a physical at your doctor once a year. Well, you need to go for a mental health checkup once a year. So I would love to see some changes on a broader scale happen with that. But just knowing that you yeah. you completed your goals and it's it's really neat to be able to tell the client along the way, hey, wow, this I don't think this is an issue for you anymore because look at where you're at. So, yeah. You know, kinda, you kinda, uh, this is probably we're getting towards the end of the time, but I, I wanted to sure. ask the question. It's, it's, it's sort of a crass term, but have you ever had to fire a client? Yes, I have. And that's never a pleasant thing. The way that I always, and this is exactly, it's not that I don't like working with anyone or sometimes therapy is, outpatient therapy is just not what people need. And sometimes I'm not the provider that they need. So again, back to what I said earlier, if people have a bad experience with the therapist, it's about that rapport. And sometimes I've had clients come and it's almost like they're just shooting the breeze with me and while I love their company that's right. that's not an appropriate use of the time and the resources so so as far as firing a client um, that's always a tricky situation my paperwork at the beginning of therapy says these are the reasons why I might refer you to another provider so right. a therapist should never just fire you so to speak right they sure. should say hey this isn't working, but I know of a provider who you might want to give a call and see, you know, as long as you feel comfortable referring this client to someone or maybe they need a higher level of care. That's always a possibility right. too. Absolutely. You know, I, I would say that one of my most rewarding parts of working with uh, people who have addictions is, uh, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a person in long-time recovery, long-term recovery. And, and I always, always love seeing the underdog, you know, uh, when the odds are so stacked against a person, uh, a lot yes. of these gals and gals that we see and, and to see them persevere and get through and push through whatever demons that they have, you know, uh, that are, that are preventing them from seeing that, you know, their true potential, um, yes. you know, and, and that person gets to determine what their true potential really is after, you know, they've stopped exactly. using and, and, and begun the process of recovery. And uh, that that is a really uh, that's a special um, place to 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 it's a sacred place really it is. Uh, for yes, people. I totally agree. Yeah, and I think the the stories like that of the underdogs. I love stories like that, and I have those of my own, you know, with clients. And maybe that's why I try to. I know that there is a possibility, you know, for anyone, if people can be homeless, if they can be in prison, if they can have this horrendous record, but yet they're doing other things you know, for themselves and not making it rich or anything, but, but sometimes that, you know, they do well. So that's why I, I say, okay, is this, are you satisfied with this? Because I really see great potential in you. So 
I totally agree with you. Well, uh, you know, I, I, I just want to say that, uh, you know, I, I do appreciate in, in the people that we have, uh, we have, we have sent to you do appreciate the, uh, the work that you're doing. And, um, when is your PhD going to be complete? Ooh, I'm almost, well, by the end of the year, I'll be a third of the way done. So I still have quite a way to go. But honestly, Tom flies. I don't know, especially as a parent, it definitely flies. So um, oh, yeah. I'm looking forward to having that. But I'm enjoying the process as well because it, it does help me in my practice. And But I'm enjoying the ride. You know, I'm not trying to hurry anything either. I enjoy seeing clients and I'm the eternal student and learner. So I, if once I finish my PhD, I'm going to, have to keep learning something because that's just how I roll. <laughs> <laughs> that's good stuff. That's good stuff. Yeah, uh, well, yeah. Well, I just, you know, I can't thank you enough uh, for, oh, for taking you. the time to speak with us today. Uh, I hope all of you uh, have enjoyed our podcast. And if you know someone struggling with an addiction and are searching for answers, Please turn into Recovery Radio on Fridays for the most up-to-date information from leading therapists, doctors, and addiction experts. You can listen anytime through the Voice America site or iTunes, where you can subscribe, rate, and review any of the Recovery Radio podcasts. And before signing off, I'd like to ask, does someone you know need inpatient or outpatient treatment for addiction? Maybe you or your loved one needs drug and alcohol rehab. Visit LandmarkRecovery.com to learn more about their innovative substance abuse programming that is saving lives and is empowering families. And until next Friday, I'm Zach Crouch with Recovery Radio, wishing you well. Have a great weekend. Thanks. Thank you for tuning in to Recovery Radio. New content for this program is available every Friday with all episodes available on demand here on the Voice America Variety Channel and through our content partners, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Google Play Podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review so we can continue to create quality content to help save 1 million lives in the next 100 years. You don't need to struggle through addiction alone. Live the life you dreamed on the road to recovery.